Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we get into his word this morning. Father, we thank you again for this gospel of Mark. Thank you for the unique perspective that Mark gives us into not only the ministry, but the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds this morning, that your spirit will help us to understand what is written, Lord, to understand why it was written, and then, Lord, that you will help us by your spirit to apply it to our lives. May we not just come to the scriptures as an academic exercise on Sunday mornings, but Lord, may it change our lives. May it be a part of our relationship with Jesus Christ. May it be that which you use to make us like your son. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is an interesting passage. As I got ready to get into this passage, I thought fasting. How are we going to talk about fasting for a half an hour? How many of you like to fast? Okay, there's a few masochists among us, but most of us, we like to eat. I like to eat. You say, I didn't notice that. I do. I like to eat. And when we come to fasting, it's like, there's a lot of questions. Why? When? How? What does it really do? How does it work with my spiritual life? And I came to this passage thinking, all right, this week I'm going to get all the questions for fasting answered. There's a few answers in here, but if you're looking for all the answers to fasting, they're not in Mark chapter 2. But there's some very, very important things that Jesus is going to cover as he goes through this. One of the greatest things that we learn in this passage is not even about fasting. It's the idea that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is unique. It is first and foremost in the messages that are there. It cannot be mixed with error and still be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christ is going to allude not only to that in his answer, but in the illustrations that he gives as he answers the questions of the Pharisees here. There's an absolute exclusivity to the truth of the gospel. You can't change it. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it and still have the gospel. And Jesus Christ is going to talk about that as he answers this question from the Pharisees. I thought it was interesting as he thought about the gospel and the way that the gospel is often attacked because of its absolute truths. Charles Spurgeon said this in a sermon. Did you ever notice the intolerance of God's religion? A thousand errors may lie in peace with one another, but truth is the hammer that breaks them in pieces. He went on later to say, The religion of Christ is a thing of God's. It's a pedigree from on high. And therefore, when once it is thrust into the midst of ungodly and gainsaying generation, it hath neither peace, nor parley, nor treaty with them. For it is truth, and cannot afford to be yoked with error. It stands upon its own rights and gives 
to error it's due, declaring that it hath no salvation, but that in the truth, and in the truth alone, is salvation found. I thought it was interesting because that message was preached in 1858. I thought it was interesting because of the day and age that we live in. A little bit different than the day and age and the culture that Jesus is going to confront here today because in our day and age, we often, as we look at religion, as we look at the truth of the gospel, the force of it is to be tolerant. The truth isn't absolute, it's relative. It's whatever we decide it to be. That's why we have all the political discussions we have nowadays because that has forced its way into our culture so much that we're redefining marriage, gender, all kinds of things. And we're saying, it's right stuff that we used, people used to be embarrassed about is now applauded when they say, I've come out of the closet. And it's stuff that was in the closet for a reason. It was sin. And as Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees here, he's going to deal with the same kind of idea, but a different kind of culture. Our culture is saying, coexist. I've talked about this before. I don't think there's any bumper sticker I hate more than the coexist bumper sticker. Because at the heart of it, it sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? We should all get along. Doesn't that sound like a great thing? We just came out of Christmas time. We should all have, I saw some kind of cartoon this week. Snoopy and Charlie Brown have all their boxes of Christmas stuff. By the way, dear, they were putting them away. Okay, they're putting away their Christmas stuff. And as they put away the Christmas stuff, it sit at the bottom of the cartoon. But keep the spirit of Christmas all year long. And I thought, well, isn't that wonderful? Except it's not depending on what you define the spirit of Christmas as being. And when we look at this coexist, it's not a great idea when you think, in order to coexist, have you looked at the symbols that are on that bumper sticker? In order to coexist, you have to compromise the truth. And Spurgeon in 1858 looked out in his generation and said, don't compromise the truth just to get along. And Jesus is going to make the point as he talks to the Pharisees, I will not compromise the truth of who I am and what I'm doing because it is the way of salvation. In fact, Jesus said himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We're not going to look so much at fasting this morning, although it's going to be that which generates the topic of discussion as we are, what will you do with Jesus Christ? That's the key to this passage. That's the key to Jesus' response. As you read the response of Jesus to why don't your disciples fast, I kind of went into this passage scratching my head and saying, you know, why did he just answer the question? Well, he does. But we need to understand how he answers the question and why he answers the question that way. Now, as we look at Jesus Christ and his clash with the Pharisees, it's not over a coexist bumper sticker. Did the Pharisees want to coexist? No, their culture was very much in vogue. It was the culture of Israel at that time, but their culture was you exclusively need to follow our ideas, our rules our regulations, and they tried to make believe that the rules and regulations all came from the Torah and the law of God. Was that true? Every time they clashed with Jesus Christ about what he was doing and wasn't doing, it shines the light on things that they added to the religion that they were given. And so we're going to see some of that today as we get into this. They create, this conflict is created because Jesus and the gospel don't fit into their religious system. Which seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? Judaism was waiting for the Messiah. Jesus Christ was the coming of 
The Messiah, should that not have dovetailed? But it doesn't. It doesn't because they had changed Judaism to be something that it was never intended to be. And so Jesus Christ doesn't fit into their form of Judaism. And it's created as well this conflict by the exclusivity of absolute truth and the clash of two different systems. And those systems clash today again time and time and time again. Because when you look at the heart of what the Pharisees were teaching... When you look at the heart even behind the question we're about to examine that comes to Jesus, it was a heart of, we are going to do enough good things and good works so that God's pleased with us. And you've got three pillars that it was built on. It was built on prayer and alms and fasting. Alms is a nice fancy word for giving. But it was prayers and giving and fasting, and they made a huge public spectacle of all of it. So that people would look and say, those are the religious people. They were a different sect from everybody around them. They were a different casting class of people because they were the Pharisees. And so that is going to clash with Jesus and his message. And it clashes as well because Jesus' message is all centered on who he was and what that ought to mean to our lives. And the Pharisees weren't even willing to come to grips with who he was. So all of that's going to be a part of what we look at as we get into this. Why is this such a clash with the Pharisees? Why all these problems? Again, we need to quickly review where we've been. I know we've been in Christmas time and we kind of got out of this and getting back in. We need to remember where we've come from. Mark wrote this book in order to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Not only that, but to define for us, what does that mean? What was he trying to communicate to people when he said he's the son of God. And as he did this, he came through with a couple of things. Number one, he demonstrated that Jesus Christ was the one who could forgive sins. It's interesting, as we read through the Gospels, are they all in the same order? That's why we have harmonies of the Gospels, because some of them are out of order for different reasons. But it's interesting in this section of the Gospels. If you look at the Gospels in this introductory part of Jesus' ministry and you look at this question recorded from the Pharisees, it is in the same chronological order in every single Gospel. You have the calling of the disciples and Matthew being called. That was a catastrophic event for the Pharisees. That was a public event of Jesus demonstrating, number one, This chronology of things, number one, you see the the healing of the paralytic man and the forgiving of his sins before he's ever healed in every gospel. Then you see from there the calling of Levi or Matthew publicly right out of his tax booth where everybody could see someone who was not supposed to be fellowshiped with in their society being called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then you go from that to this question. Why don't your disciples fast like our disciples do? And there's a reason because, number one, Jesus has already demonstrated and Mark is demonstrating by his gospel that Jesus has the authority and power to forgive sins because he is the Son of God. Only God can forgive sins. They were right. Jesus was God. They were wrong on that account. They missed that. They didn't want to acknowledge that. And then you have him saying, okay, if not only can I forgive sins... But as the Son of God, I can extend forgiveness to people that you won't even think would come to me. You think about the way Jesus did what he did. Jesus walked about, and who did he call for his followers? You've got this almost caste system in Judah, in Israel in that time. And you've got the religious people, and who were the religious people? 
the scribes, the Pharisees. So when the Messiah comes, if he's going to gather up a following, who's he supposed to go see? The scribes and the Pharisees. And instead, he walks around, and don't take this wrong because it's not meant that way, but he walks around and he finds common folk. I feel like I'm one of the common folks, so I love that when I see that. I, I look back at, at my roots, and I grew up in a, in a blue-collar home, in a lower-middle-class family, and Jesus comes to those kind of families, and he looks at Peter, and he, looks at, and he says, follow me. He looks at James and John, a couple of hotheads, fishermen, and he says, follow me. And while the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to get their mind around why is he going to, in their mind, the riffraff, he goes to a new low. He walks down the street. He looks into the tax booth to the hated tax collector, Matthew, whose heart was ready because he leaves it all. And he says, follow me. And if, if, as if the fishermen weren't enough, because they struggle with that throughout the book of Acts. You look at that. You watch as they call them in and say, these are simple fishermen. How do they know so much? How are they so bold? Because Jesus Christ changed their lives. And he does the same thing with Matthew. And so he's reaching out. He's calling fishermen. He's calling tax collectors. He's eating in Matthew's home. That's chronologically, again, in every one of the Gospels. He goes from calling Matthew to eating in Matthew's home. After he's demonstrated he can forgive sin. And he eats with whom? Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. And there are the Pharisees outside the house. They won't even walk in to confront him. They're waiting until they come back out because they're not going to be unclean with those people. And Jesus Christ is offering forgiveness to those who need it most. To those who are ready. Why do the Pharisees and the scribes never come to Christ in the Gospels? They never see themselves as sinners in need of the Savior. And so he's going to the sinners and he explains that to them. And then they, they're looking and they're saying, wait, something's wrong with this guy. He's got a great following, but he's not following us. He's not part of the establishment. And so as they come to Jesus Christ, they're coming here with a real agenda. Jesus' message is not one of self-righteousness to people who assume they don't need forgiveness. His was a message of forgiveness to those who knew they were sinners. And needed Christ. And so here we come to all of this and we get to this question. It's interesting how this takes place. There's a, there's a critical, not critical from really important, but critical from I'm criticizing you. It's a critical ex- accusation. And they come with it in form of a question. And look at the question here. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. What's the purpose behind that question? Were they having a teaching meeting over there in the synagogue? And as the Pharisees were talking with one another, they said, You know, I've noticed something very interesting. Our disciples are fasting. You know, that that character John the Baptist, we don't really like what he's doing, but his disciples are fasting. But Jesus' disciples, they're feasting. Something's wrong here. Is that, we need to find out why. Is that what's happening here? Now, when they come with this question, this is not a question. It's a rhetorical question. It's an accusation. Because in their mind, there are three pillars of religion. If you want to be pious, you are praying, you are giving, and you are fasting. To the point that 
Tradition tells us that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Every Monday was a fast day. Every Thursday was a fast day. I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if one of these times that Jesus was meeting with all of these people and eating with ones who shouldn't have been, it had to be a Monday or Thursday. Because he was demonstrating some things. And so they come with this question, and it says to them, why do your disciples, and it's an accusation. You ever have anybody ask you a question that really wasn't a question? It was there to tell you that you were wrong. That's exactly what's happening here. Instead of just coming up and saying, Jesus, your followers have a big problem. They're not fasting. This is violating rabbinical law. And I say it that way because we're going to look at some things in the scripture about what is fasting all about? What's its purpose? And where did it come from? Instead of doing that, he comes with a question. Why aren't you fasting? But it's like, why aren't you fasting? And you know you should be, so now you need to apologize and get this right and get your followers doing what they need to do. That's what this question, the whole emphasis behind it is about. The interesting thing about that is, look at verse 18. When the Pharisees came, who did they come with? John's disciples. What were John's disciples doing with the Pharisees? Did John have a message that was complimentary to the Pharisees? Not at all. Was John in tune with the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Lamb of God? Well, he declared it when he baptized him. Here comes the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So what are John's disciples doing with the Pharisees? Because you look at this question and you say, why would they ask that kind of question to Jesus? Well, you need to remember, for a moment at least, what John's ministry and baptism was all about. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, signifying, I want to have a spiritual renewal in my life so I can be ready when the Messiah comes. That's what his baptism was all about. Are you content with where you are, or do you want to get your life right with God? And they came and said, we want to get our lives right with God, and they were baptized. And most of them didn't hang out with John all the time. They went home. Now they went home, and they said, I want to be right with God. Now what did their culture tell them they needed to do to be right with God? They needed to be praying and giving and fasting. And so they were fasting. They, they didn't have all the answers yet. So there may be a part of a contingency in this group asking the question from John's that they really need to be filled in. There's another part of this contingency from the Pharisees who are just taking shots at Jesus and trying to undermine his ministry. But as Jesus comes, he's going to take care of both of these questions. He's going to deal with both of these things. Jesus Christ's answer is going to make a difference because he's going to answer the wonderings of John's disciples and he's going to fend off the accusation of the Pharisees. Now, how is he going to do that? Because you look at the fact of these three things were a big deal in, in, in Israel. Praying, fasting, almsgiving. If you were going to be right with the Lord, that's what you did. And so when the Pharisees come, they're basically saying to Jesus, your disciples, your folks, they are not right with God. They're not doing what they need to do. And the key to that indignation, again, are they upset because Jesus' disciples aren't right with God in their eyes? What really upset the Pharisees? We need to understand that to understand Jesus' answer. 
The Pharisees weren't coming and saying, you know, we really wish you would just get on board with us. Well, they did wish that. But, you know, because we want to see your disciples do what's right. They were trying to point out to people that this Jesus is not somebody to be followed. He's not following God's way. And you all know what God's way is. God's way is fasting and praying and giving. And you see us do it all the time. We do it with fanfare. And Jesus is going to deal with that. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? He said, when you do your praying and when you do your giving and when you do your fasting, do it so nobody knows. And so here they are getting on to Jesus Christ, failing to teach his people, his disciples, to follow the man-made traditions and rules in order to be right with God. That's something that only happened in Jesus' time. Do we get Baptist rules that we think that maybe everybody needs to be doing to be right with God, and they're not necessarily from here? Do we have our own rituals and things? I ran into one, okay? I'll be brutally honest. Uh, I, and then you can throw me out afterwards, I guess. But I ran into, this is, to me, this is one of the rituals in the church. And it's not necessarily, some of them aren't necessarily bad. Is fasting a bad thing? We're going to say, no, it's not. And, you know, we came into Christmas time. And I grew up in a Baptist church, but in my Baptist church, we never did all the Advent stuff. You know, we didn't have four weeks of Advent. We didn't have candles up front. And all those things. And the first year I was here, I think we did this. And one year, just decided we were going to do some other things and didn't do it. And did I get in trouble? Where are the Advent candles? And I was like, why? We can't have Christmas without Advent. And I'm thinking, what happened? What happened was, it was a ritual that wasn't being observed. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. And I think it can be a wonderful observation for us. You know, th- this morning, I've got some stuff up on the table. Because it's wonderful reminder. We've been studying Proverbs. And as I was thinking about that, in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 4, it tells us that part of the reason that the, the uh, scriptures were supposed to be before people's eyes all the time was so that they'd remember. So Moses told them that they should have it in their fore- before their foreheads and written on their arms and on the doorposts of their homes. And all over their house, there should be scripture written. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have something on the table this morning that reminds us of what we ought to be doing? Into the word and into prayer. And so those things are important. So candles and Advent can be important, but where did it come from? It's not in the book of Luke. We don't have to have it. In fact, where did this Christmas celebration come from? It goes back to Constantine, and we want to talk about But he picked the date, and he picked it on a pagan holiday of all things. Jesus Christ wasn't born on December 25th. But is it wrong to remember his birth? Is it wrong to celebrate it? Is it wrong to praise? No, it's not. But so many things become rituals. And so this whole fasting thing had become a ritual like that to the, to the Pharisees. And they were like, you can't be right with God without it. And so they look at the Son of God and say, what's wrong with you? You're not right with God. And that's exactly what's happening here. Because they don't respect who he is and what he's doing. And so we get to Jesus' response. But before we do that, before we talk about the response, and we will in just a moment, we need to talk about... Fasting, just a little bit. What is fasting? What's its mandate? What's its purpose? What does this book tell us about fasting? How many of you have ever done a study on fasting? You know, there, there may be a few, but it's not one of those topics we, you know, if I announced we're going to do four weeks of study on fasting over the next month on Wednesday night, you, a lot of you wouldn't show up, okay? I get that. It doesn't sound like an exciting thing. So where did it come from? You know, in the, all of the Old Testament scriptures, there's only one command, 
and it's cashed in with another set of words where we're told, the people of Israel were told to fast. You know how many days out of the year they were told that they needed to fast? One day, the Day of Atonement. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 and 30, as they're given the whole outline of what it means to, to celebrate the Day of Atonement and having the picture of their sins forgiven and all that went with that, it says in verse 29, And it shall be a statute to you forever that on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. And the fasting comes out of that Hebrew idea of afflicting yourselves. And the teaching was that part of afflicting is denying yourself, humbling yourself. And so you fasted. In fact, the fast for the Day of Atonement was the only fast throughout all of Israel that was held that was a 24-hour fast. How do most of the fasts in religion take place nowadays? You even think of Ramadan. And, and what happens is from sunrise to sunset. And when the Pharisees were fasting, they were fasting sunrise to sunset. And that's fine as a fast, but in the Day of the Atonement, it was a 24-hour time where the people of Israel fasted to humble themselves before God. To have a special time of communion with their God at the time when this atonement is all pictured. It's the only time. Now, if we look in the the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral law and tradition, and that wasn't even compiled to be written down until about 200 AD, but it had gone for centuries as oral tradition. They said that they talk about three types of fasts. From the scriptures. One, during national tragedies, like when Nebuchadnezzar came through and he destroyed the temple, the people fasted. Now, we keep these in mind because we're going to talk about why they fasted when we get to the end. Number two, it was a time of crises such as war, drought, famine, when the whole country was in trouble for something that was going on. They would fast. And then thirdly, there were voluntary fasts. And there were a lot of these throughout Scripture. You can look in book after book. The thing is they're voluntary. They almost always involve grief or sorrow over sin. And the purpose was pursuit of communion with God. When you see fasting in the Scripture, it's almost always linked with prayer and communion with God. And the purpose is to humble ourselves. And it's a private thing between us and God to demonstrate our humility and our desire for communion with him. And it's not a fast, a fast magic bullet for anything. Often we think, if I fast and pray, then God's going to hear me better than if I pray. And God's going to be, if I fast enough, and if I'm dedicated to it, he's going to be obligated to do what I ask him to do. And that's not what fasting's for. Fasting is to humble me. Fasting is to take me to a place where I am willing to give up something in order to concentrate on my relationship and my communion with God. And that's why it's almost always hooked into with prayer. And so we see this fasting that's not a mandatory thing like the Pharisees had made it. Twice a week, Monday, Thursday, everybody fasts. It loses It's whole potential and what God intended it to be if it becomes a, you do it every Monday and Thursday. Now, it might be good for your health. My doctor tells me fasting's good for me. I look at him and say, yeah, you tell me a lot of things are good for me. I ignore most of those, okay? But it's not, God didn't say fast for that purpose. He said fast so that you're giving up something you would normally enjoy and do in order to focus on me. It's for our hearts. And, And too often we look at fasting as, it's not for my heart, it's to change God's heart. God, do you realize what's going on in my life? If I fast and pray for you, can, see what's happening here. Realize what I'm going through and change it. 
And so I, I add fasting to my prayer because I want God to change something. And what God wants to do is change me. God wants me to look and say, God, I realize that you're working in my life exactly the way that you need to be working in my life and help me to accept it, to go forward and be Christ-like in it. It changes the whole realm of what we're doing with it if we see it that way. So that's what we see as we look at fasting and what the Pharisees had done to it. And we need to realize that fasting, if we fast with the wrong motives, it doesn't do anything for us. If you fast because you're sure that if I fast, God will finally answer my prayer... It's the wrong reason to go to fasting. In fact, God said this in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 4. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. There's fasting that will do you no good if it's not done with the right spirit and in the right way. It ought to be for humbling ourselves. It ought to be for communing with our God. And so that's what it should have been. And so as Jesus looks at these Pharisees who are coming and saying, you're not on God's plan here. You know, you've missed the fasting plan, and you need to get your disciples doing it, or you can't be right with God. Jesus Christ answers, beginning in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What kind of question did Jesus just ask the Pharisees? They asked a pretty simple question. Why don't your disciples fast? How does he answer them? He answers them with a rhetorical question that, For a long time, I looked at this and said, what? What does this have to do with anything? And you need to understand, there's there's several of these pictures that you won't understand unless you understand Jewish life and the way it worked. And so Jesus is looking at these Pharisees, and what he is telling them is, number one, rather than apologize for doing something that you think I should be doing and I'm not, I'm going to actually escalate the conflict to expose what spiritual life is really all about. Number two, what I'm going to tell you is spiritual life is all about me. Now, you can't say that. You better not say that. But when Jesus Christ says it's all, he says it's about God. It's about your relationship with God. It's about your relationship, as Mark is putting it here, with the Son of God and who he is. And what's happening here is I am the great bridegroom that's been talked about, as God talked about the bride throughout Scripture. You know, the bridegroom is very rarely addressed in that way in the Old Testament, but the bride is. He looked and said, my people are my bride. And sometimes he chastised them because his bride was committing adultery with other folks and not serving God and doing what he should. But now Jesus is bringing new truth into this to say, not only are you the bride, but guess what? You're looking at the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is present and the marriage is about to take place, he says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It's supposed to be a time of joy. It's supposed to be a time of festivity. In fact, you know, ladies seem to like weddings more than men. I don't know why that is. You know, men go there and they grimace and, oh, we got to go. You know? But when you, when you went to a wedding in Jewish days, it was a party for a week. You seven-day festival to celebrate the union of a man and a woman under the covenant of God to be a family unit forever. And so it was a huge time of festivity. In fact, so much so that it was forbidden For Jewish folks involved in any kind of wedding ceremony, especially if you were part of this wedding party, it was forbidden to fast. Because fasting was about sorrow. It was about regret. It was about wanting to get things right. And this was supposed to be a festive time. And even the Jewish rabbinic laws forbade the practice of fasting when you were in part of a wedding. 
Because it was supposed to be a joyous occasion of God uniting two hearts together. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, the reason you don't understand this is because you don't understand who I am. The bridegroom is here. And this is my wedding group. And again, there's a little bit of confusion on how should this actually be translated here with these wedding guests. Is it the wedding guests? Is it the wedding party? What? It really doesn't matter. It's the people at the wedding. And Jesus Christ says, I'm looking at these disciples of mine and they're part of the wedding party. And they should be joyous because they are in my presence. They're in the presence of the Son of God, the bridegroom. And you don't get it because you don't get what? You don't get who I am. Because if you got who I was, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom's with them? You wouldn't be asking that question. You'd be joyous, but you're not. You're still sorrowful and crying out to God for a Messiah who's standing right in front of you and you don't want to accept him. The truth is going out in a very picturesque way to these Pharisees. And then we get to verse 20. And verse 20 is a very interesting statement. It's a prophetic statement. Does Jesus intend that his followers will be going throughout their entire relationship without ever fasting? No, look at verse 20. He says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. This is the first prophetic statement in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus Christ is going to die on Calvary. When you look at that idea, and we don't catch it all in the English there, but that idea for being taken away is a sudden violent removal. That's what the word means in the Greek. And so Jesus Christ looks and says, you know what, the bridegroom's with him today, but one day he's going to be suddenly and violently removed. Through Calvary. Isaiah 53, 8 talks about him being cut off from his people. And that whole picture there, Jesus said, and when that happens, when the bridegroom's no longer present, when the wedding is no longer being celebrated, then they will fast in that day. But for now, they're with the bridegroom. And it begs the question, where are you in your walk with Christ? How important is the presence of Christ in your life to you? Does it bring joy? When you fellowship with Christ, is it an exciting thing? I, I thought about that because I, I think about this every year. You know, How many of you, and I won't ask for a raise of hands, but did, did you pick up a Bible reading schedule last week? Or do you at least have a plan for reading through the Bible? That can be one of the most discouraging things in all of Christendom about February, March, or April. Why is that? We get busy. And I encourage you to pick up a Bible reading schedule, but pick it up with the right perspective and attitude. If you pick it up and say, I got to get this done. I got to check off this box. It's the 6th, and I started three days late, so I got to catch up on those three days. And it becomes a chore for you. You've missed the whole boat. Because reading through the Scriptures ought to be our opportunity to spend time in the presence of Christ. It ought to bring joy to your heart. And so if you can't do that with that reading schedule, throw it out. I didn't say don't read your Bible. I said throw out the reading. If the reading schedule pushes you to do something rote like those Pharisees were doing all of their fasting, then don't use the reading schedule, but get into the book. Or, or, Or don't use it religiously. You know, more people have read the book of Genesis than probably any book in the entire Bible. Why is that? We start out really well. We do it in a lot of things. It's January, on January 1st, I got on the treadmill. 
I hadn't been on the treadmill since the 24th of December. It was Christmas, okay? I was busy with other things. I got on, I've been exercising twice a day on the treadmill for the last week. You know what's going to happen about three weeks from now? Oh, life's gotten busy. Well, I'll catch up tomorrow. If, you're, if I'm not careful, that treadmill becomes my arch enemy. And it keeps track of when I'm on it. I know exactly how many workouts I had last year. I wanted to get at least 250 workouts in last year. I failed. And it reminds me, if I turn it on and look at it, you missed it. You know, you were a little bit short there, buddy. And so I'm working again. But don't let that become your Bible reading. I remember back, this is a long time ago. I remember back to when I was engaged to be married. And I had a long-distance relationship. I was living in Buffalo, and my wife was down here in Greenville, and then she got a job. And you, know, you think she'd love me enough to get a job in Buffalo after she graduated, but she got one in Baltimore instead. So we're writing letters back and forth. You know, I didn't have a, a letter-reading schedule for my wife. I didn't have to say, oh, I got two letters this week, and I haven't read them yet. I really ought to get to this and check them off my list. I, I didn't grab those, you know, I grabbed him and said, you know, am I still going to get married? She's living in Baltimore now. Why didn't she move to Buffalo? You know, so I'm reading between the lines and I'm reading everything there. And how much does she really miss me? Does she miss me? Is there somebody else taking her out to dinner tonight? And I'm reading all these letters because I'm in love. And I would make trips down to Baltimore to see my wife when I had any opportunity because being in her presence was important to me. Every time we go to this book... This is the Savior's love letter to us. Everything in this book is important. If it wasn't, he wouldn't have given it to us. And he wants us to look at this not as a duty, but as a privilege. As an opportunity to sit in his presence. So whether you sit in his presence for three or four verses, or three or four chapters, or you read through the whole book of something someday because you just get all caught up in it, this ought to be an opportunity to spend time in his presence. Don't let it become a duty. Don't let it become a drudgery. And if it starts to become so, you need to take a step back and maybe fast and pray for a day there and say, God, give me back the joy of just being in your presence. And don't let me worry about how many check marks are there. But help me get into the book because I love the Savior of the book. And so that's kind of what Jesus is after as he's beginning to do this and as he clarifies things. Don't be out of touch with God's plan. As he looked at the Pharisees, he said, your problem is you're out of touch with God's plan. And I love the way, and I I borrowed this from MacArthur as I was reading through his section on this passage. He said, Jesus' point to the questionnaires simply is this. Judaism, at its most devout level, exemplified by the scribes and the Pharisees, was completely out of touch with God's plan of salvation. Don't get there. And this is what he meant. They were mourning when they should have been rejoicing. The Pharisees were consumed with self-righteousness when they should have been consumed with God's grace. Do you love God's mercy and grace? If you don't, you better get in the book and find out what it's all about. But for God's mercy and grace, where would we be? They were consumed and denied with the fact that the righteous and denied they were sinners. Jesus Christ was preaching repentance from sin. The Pharisees embraced external ceremony and tradition and Jesus Christ was looking in and saying I want a transformed heart not externals they loved the applause of men and he wanted to give them the approval of God they had dead ritual and this is where we just talked about Jesus Christ was offering them dynamic relationship and that's the difference 
We love this book because we love the God of this book. We love the Savior of this book. We have a dynamic relationship with him. They were promoting a system and he was promoting salvation. Where are you? Don't let the rituals and the duties take away the love of the relationship that's there. And then finally, he's going to go through and he's going to clarify it for him. And we're going to finish this in just a moment or two with this, but he's giving them a couple of pictures. And again, they're pictures that you won't understand if you don't understand what's going on in Jewish time. Is number one, he says, No one sews a piece of unstrung cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the old from the new, or the new from the old, and the tear is worse, the, tear, the worst tear is made. Now, I read that and I thought, when I was growing up, that made sense to me. I remember when I was a little kid, and I had blue jeans. My grandmother would patch my jeans and patch my jeans and patch my jeans. And she'd always use old jean material from old jeans that just had too many patches on them. And she'd patch my new jeans. Nowadays, the more holes they get in, the more, the more you pay for them. And we've got a whole generation wearing half a pair of jeans. But back in this day, you didn't do that. And Jesus is saying, and you, everybody knows you don't take a new piece of cloth that's not been shrunk that's not been faded, and put it on an old garment. Because the first time you do, after you sew that in and you wash the garment and that new piece of cloth shrinks, it tears up everything you did. And I looked and I said, hmm, what's he mean by that? And he goes on and gives a second illustration. He says here in verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, I understood the first illustration, although I didn't totally get what it was about at first. But now he's talking about wine and wineskins. How many of you have wine and wineskins at home? You know, again, you've got to understand the day in which Jesus Christ is living. Their wineskins were usually the skins of goats. And the goats were scun, trying not to cut it up any more than just maybe around the legs and around the neck. And they'd sew up the bottom of the legs and the neck became the spout. And that's where they would keep their wine. And Jesus Christ looks at the folks and he says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Because those wineskins, with time, would get brittle. They wouldn't be elastic. When they're fresh, they're elastic and they stretch. And he's looking and saying, you put new wine in a new wineskin, and it expands, and it ferments, and gases are created in there, and the skin just expands with it, and it's fine, but you put it in an old wineskin, and the old wineskin cracks and breaks apart, and you lose the wineskin and the wine. Said, so, And you know that, and the people are all like, yeah, we know that, and we're looking and saying, I don't even really know what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that you've got to know what's going on, and you've got to know how it works, and he's looking, at, and basically this is what he's saying in a nutshell. You don't put new cloth on an old garment, because it just doesn't work. You don't put new wine in an old wineskin because it doesn't work. And he's looking at the Pharisees, and they were getting it. We may not get it, but they looked and he said, I know what he's saying. He's saying our system of self-righteousness is like the old garment. And you don't take what Jesus Christ is doing, which was new and fresh and real and from God, and mix it in with that. It doesn't work. Jesus came not to patch up the old Pharisees' system of self-righteousness, but to destroy it and remove it. Now, don't get that wrong. He did not say he came to destroy the Old Testament. He came to fulfill that. But he looked at the garments and he said, this is what the Pharisees have done to that. And that's got to go. He said, they are like the old wineskins. And what I am bringing you is the new covenant and new life in me and forgiveness in me, forgiveness that lasts for all of eternity if you put your faith and trust in me. And that doesn't work in the old system of self-righteousness. 
And the reason I say that is there are even some good people in Baptist churches who still think if I can only be good enough and add Christ to that, God's going to accept me. And that's not how it works. You can never be good enough. That's why Jesus Christ brings in a Levi and sits with sinners and publicans and prostitutes and offers them the gospel because he says, salvation is in me, it's not in you. And if you're too self-righteous to be a sinner, then you're too self-righteous to come to God. And that's his whole point as he looks at these Pharisees. Oh, that they would have gotten that message. Oh, that we'll get that message. It's our relationship in Christ. Is fasting a good thing? There are great times for us to fast and pray. They did in the New Testament. Before they sent out Paul and Barnabas, they fasted and they prayed. Not because it was a ritual, but because they wanted God's ear of communication, saying, God, help us do this right. Other decisions you need to make that you want to get it right, fast and pray about it. It's okay. It's not ritual there when you say, God, I'm fasting not so you'll answer my prayer, but so that my heart will be in tune with you and I will get everything out of the way but that one relationship. And God, lead and guide me. They did the same thing when Paul and Barnabas were out in their first missionary journey. They said they prayed and they fasted and then they set elders up in the churches because it was too important to get it wrong. Are you going through something that you say, God, I need the answer? Go ahead and fast and pray. Now, don't, don't tell everybody you're fasting. Then, then we get into the Sermon on the Mount again. But fast and pray and ask God to do it because it's a part of your relationship, not for ritual. Is your Christian life ritual or relationship? Oh, that 2024 will be the year that it come, becomes deeper and deeper in relationship, less about the ritual and more about the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example here. And Lord, even using something like fasting and the reaction of the Pharisees to once again point us to the relationship that we need to have in Jesus Christ. God, it's so easy for us to try and live our Christian lives off checklists and do this and do that when we need to live it off of relationship with you, pleasing you with our lives, doing what we do, not so that we can be seen as great people, but so that you'll be pleased and approve of the things that we do as we become more like Christ. So work in our hearts and lives, deepen our relationship, deepen our love. And Lord, help us to put Jesus Christ central, even as he was trying to get the folks to do there, as he explained to them what he was doing, that he must be central in all, that that relationship must not only be precious, but first and foremost in our lives. Lord, help us to do that this year, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.